a secret ambition. I propose to end the domination of Silicon Valley. Project Main Strike. A secret plan. For which each of you will pay me $100 million. And a secret weapon. Someone will take care of you. Oh, you'll uh, see to that personally, will you? There's only one man who can stop them. going uh that ukulele uh rendition it's not my best i've done better but the tab that i had for the ukulele version of it uh is gone now it's uh, dis- it disappeared off the app after the guitar app and it's unfortunate but there you go um <laughs> i gave it an effort here a so, a view to a kill. Um, now, I have a bias on this movie because 
this movie was the first Bond movie I watched when I was a kid. And I went to to see it with uh, family. And I quite enjoyed it. Um, Because all the elements were there in a Bond movie. And I I don't know if I'd seen... I'd probably probably have seen snippets of Bond here and there on TV. But this was the first proper movie to watch, I think. And it was, uh, yeah, it was mid-80s. It was Duran Duran. Um, went to go see it uh, up north. Uh, I think it was on a theater in Mackinac Island. And, uh, yeah, yeah, we have every, it was so 80s out. It was like, I remember the, the white hats with the, uh, white rims. I, it's hard to, they're like can hats. I, it's hard to explain how these hats were with like, uh, the checkerboard pattern on it. You know, in the eighties, <laughs> mid eighties, especially we're all about the checkerboard patterns. And, uh, I think I remember wearing that one of those hats and, um, so there's, there's some good memories, childhood memories associated with this one. So you'll have to forgive me for my bias. Uh, but I'll I'll review this. It's a classic, A View to a Kill, which has got an amazing theme song. I think it's my favorite theme, theme song out of all of them. Um, it's catchy. It's fun. Um, it's Duran Duran. And they're, they're the kings at making catchy music. I think that's something that's sorely kind of missed today. <laughs> I think a lot of music these days is a little bit too wordy. And not catchy enough, but uh, anyway, that's just my opinion. That's a whole nother. That's a whole nother rant. Whole nother podcast. Uh, going on IMDb here, and uh, I really love that Christopher Walken was in it, and and Grace Jones. I think their their visual and their style really make this movie different. Um, I'll go over the cast a little bit here. Directed by Scott Glenn. Scott, was it? No, is it not Scott Glenn? I'm sorry. John Glenn. Whew, sorry. John Glenn, who had done several other Bond movies. I can't remember which exact ones he did. I will give you the log line of this one. Um, The recovery of a microchip off the body of a fellow agent leads James Bond to a mad industrialist who plans to create a worldwide microchip monopoly by destroying California's Silicon Valley. Uh, I believe that the poster's got, uh, you know, it, it's got a, a great finale, even if it's, you know, blue screened or whatever, it, you know, on top of the, I think that's the Golden Gate Bridge. Um, but, uh, which is such a, such a climax for the film, uh, literally and, uh, you know, visually, and, yeah, this is, this is a younger, much younger Christopher Walken, um, one of the things I will say, as much as I like Christopher Walken's performance, you know, looking, looking at it now, objectively, it's like they didn't quite milk him enough, he didn't quite have enough lines, I thought. And I think he did the best with what little lines he had. Um, 
I think I think they could have explored his character a bit more. Um, Tanya Roberts, may she rest in peace. Uh, she was she's a beautiful Bond girl. She she was fine, you know. Um, uh, Grace Jones is kind of like a, a semi heavy in this movie, and she has some interesting, fun gadgets in it. And there's a dynamic between her and uh, Max Zoran. Zoran. Zoran and uh, it's Christopher Walken's character there, the main villain, and uh, a semi-love relationship, which is interesting in it. Also, a note, uh, Alison Duty, Duty, Alison Duty, how about that for a last name? Very uh, beautiful actress that was also in uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Uh, she played the... Uh, uh, love interest of uh, Indy and uh, was a Nazi, of course, which is revealed. So let's go into it. Um, this was the last Roger Moore movie of the Bonds. And I remember going to see this. I think I, I think I went to see it with my brother and all that. And, and our friend, uh, our friend Jeff. And I remember they were watching it. And they're kind of like uh, saying, "Wow, oh, come on. There's a lot of come on moments. And it's like, he's too old. And like, there's a lot of that kind of stuff. But I, I went with it. I gave it a break, you know. Um, let's see. So let's go into the trivia. Speaking of age, age, Sir Roger Moore was 57 at the time of this film's release. Uh, making him the oldest actor to play James Bond, tied with David Niven in Casino Royale, 1967. Moore was also the second oldest, as he was uh, 55 when Octopussy was released. The third oldest are Moore, Sir Sean Connery, and Daniel Craig, who were all 53 when For Your Eyes Only, Never Say Never Again, and No Time to Die were released, respectively. Interesting, interesting. Um, <laughs> this is goofs. Uh, as Bond and Stacy are climbing up an elevator, the elevator shaft, the cables burn through, the, burn through and the elevator falls down the shaft. Elevators have braking systems that present, pre prevent them from falling in the event of a loss of their supporting cables. But you didn't know that. Um, quotes. Uh, the morning after Bond sleeps with Mayday. Uh, Max, Max Zorin. You sleep well, James Bond. A little restless, but uh, I get off eventually. Ha, 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 ha. That's some good uh, porn talk right there. Um, crazy credits. Opening credits disclaimer. Neither the, the name Zorin or any other name of character in, or character in this film is meant to portray a real company or actual person appears right before the gun barrel opening sequence. It was added. It, it was added. It was added. <laughs> it was added. It was ad added after producers discovered a real company run by a person named Zoran, 
with an A-N. <laughs> Interesting. A real company run by a person named Zoran. Zoran. Uh, alternate versions. A, uh, a deleted scene presented on the DVD shows Bond being bailed out of a Paris jail by M following his taxi chase of Mayday. Uh, the scene shows Bond collecting his personal effects, including wristwatch and garrote wire from Russia with love, an ink pen filled with acid, and a cigarette lighter that's a flamethrower. Yeah, I don't know if I saw that yet. I'll have to watch that scene. That's pretty cool. Um, soundtracks, of course, If You Do a Kill, music by John Barry, lyrics by Duran Duran, performed by Duran Duran. So some of the highlights musically in the movie are when John is when John Barry covers uh, the theme of If You Do a Kill. It's pretty awesome. see one of their views here uh, featured review a violent bond film with an aggressive strong and sexuality oh here's a word Who? I've never seen this one before <laughs> pultritudinous bond girl strong and sexually pultritudinous Paltritudinous. Uh, come on. <laughs> I mean, it's... Uh, you just... Come on. That that word is never used anywhere. This person just wanted to put that word in. To, you know, piss people off. He says, I first... That was the headline. I first saw this in the early 90s on VHS. Visited it recently. In the, it is the 14th in the Bond series and the final appearance of Roger Moore's James Bond. Um, let me see if I can scroll down. Uh, here we go. It, this is, okay. In this movie, uh, Bond has to deal with the villain Zoran, who is planning to blow up Silicon Valley. I think he is fed up with the geek, geeks and nerds. Apart from Zoran, none of the henchmen are noteworthy. Yeah, I think there was like one in there, but I barely remember him. Um, there's a fight scene downstairs in like a uh, mansion. Now, it was pretty decent. It's, uh, I'll continue with the reviews here. It says, this one's a bit violent. Well, it's a James Bond movie. The main villain, Zorin, a sadistic psychopath, played smooth, smoothly by Christopher Walken, displays a near total lack of loyalty to his own men and shoots hundreds of people with machine guns. That, too, with a smile. Yeah, I thought that was... Um, 
that was pretty crazy. But it sh- it was the first time you have a a villain, you know. He was supposed to kind of note how crazy o- over the top he was. He was an eccentric, like he didn't care towards the end about his own people. Um, so that was a pretty a dark. I think even Roger Moore talked about that. He he said something like, "That's not that's you know that's not a Bond thing, you know. It's not that you could have that in the Bond movie." But looking at it now, I think it. it, it I think that it's aged okay. You know, it really shows you how whacked out his character was. Um, and again, you want to, you want, you know, maybe the writer wanted to differentiate this one from the other villains. I'll continue. A, a man, a man gets minced in an underwater exhaust fan. In this movie, Bond does an, it does an amazing, uh, horse hurdle race. That's true. Uh, you like horses, Mr. Bond, is <laughs> is a line, I think, that's uh, in the movie. Uh, I'll just say, uh, it could have it used more Christopher Walken one-liners. Um, okay, I'll keep going here. Uh, it has a lovely pre-credit scene that is of that, that, of a breathtaking ski chase. Yeah, that's the beginning. But they throw some cheesy... Uh, um, uh, Beach Boys music in it that kind of ruins it. Um, it has a spectacular chase up and down the Eiffel Tower. Yes, this is a good part of the movie, which must have been inspired by the parkour chase sequence in Casino Royale. Uh, Casino Royale was way after this. <laughs> I don't know what they're talking about. Um, okay, it must have inspired the parkour chase. Sequence in Casino Royale. Okay, so they're saying this inspired the Casino Royale one. The climactic fight. That's interesting. Uh, the climactic fight scene on Golden Gate on the Golden Gate Bridge is very well done. Yeah, there's this blimp in the movie with the Zoran uh, um, name on it, and it's a very distinct part of the whole movie. And the the music with by John Barry with meeting you. With a view to a kill, like it, it works really well. So that it that stands out, um, and the goal again, it's a neat place to have a fight scene, and uh, it's hard to top that. Again, it's blue screened, it definitely looks fake in a lot of parts, but the idea of it's really cool. Um, this movie is Dolph Lundgren's first on-screen role playing General Gogol's KGB bodyguard, Vince, but without any dialogue. Yeah, he doesn't have any dialogue. You know, he's, he's there. He's there, but he, he's got a little bit of a presence in it, but that's about it. Um, he is present before the iconic dialogue. Uh, no one ever leaves the KGB. Uh, in, this, in this movie, Bond gets to cool off with Mary Stabin. Fiona Fullerton, Tanya Roberts, and Grace Jones. A true Amazonian female and better than the fake Gal Gadot. <laughs> ah, that's funny. Grace Jones was the first sexually aggressive Bond girl. Uh, evidenced by her reversal of positions, she climbed on top. <laughs> Many fellas say that Maud Adams is present in the movie as an extra and uncredited of that passerby. I tried but didn't notice her. I didn't either. Um, some of 
some info on Zorin. Max Zorin is a sharp businessman operating on the, on the microchip market. He is highly intelligent and acts very fast because he is the product of a Nazi medical experimentation uh, during World War II in which pregnant women were injected with massive quantities of steroids in an attempt to create superchildren. Most of the pregnancies failed with few surviving babies, while the few surviving babies grew to become extraordinarily intelligent, but also psychopathic. See, that's cool. That's a movie in itself. So the, I think his villain had a lot more potential. Um, I, I think if this movie was remade by someone who's a little bit more, uh, I don't know, has a little bit more writing chops. I think this could be a lot better of a, of a film on the whole, looking at uh, subjectively at it. Because um, all, the, all the elements are there. They just needed to come out more and uh, take up a little bit more of the movie. Um, after the war, Hans Glob, Hans Glob a.k.a. Karl M Mortner, the German scientist who con conducted the experiments, raised a young Zorin. Zorin was later trained by KGB agents. So I'll go down to the trivia and that'll that'll um bring up some more some more haha <laughs> pun not not intended uh memories of this film. Um also in this movie is the guy from the Avengers. Let me get the guy that guy's um, name here because I can't think of it off the top of my head. So that's pretty cool that he was from the Avengers and he was in this Bond movie. It all kind of comes together a little bit, all the spies. Uh, his name is, should be here, Patrick Mc McNee. Patrick McNee. And he's kind of like a, uh, oh, someone, an ally of Bond in this. And uh, let's see here. Okay, here we go. In the DVD commentary, Sir Roger Moore said that of the seven Bond films in which he starred, this is his least favorite. <laughs> he didn't like the increased violence. He felt like you, and he felt like he was getting too old for the part. So this movie is like his swan song. But even with that being so, there's. He's still doing his best in this movie. And I think, you know, there's definitely some weaknesses in the script. The movie kind of jumps around different parts. It loses momentum um, with the pacing a bit. There's a part in the movie where they're kind of going around in the different horse stalls. And it kind of drags a little bit. And uh, and there's some parts in the cave, the underground uh, layer, where it's like... They dwell on shots a little bit too long and they don't need to, you know. So, let's see here. But again, when I was watching this as a kid, that was more forgivable because I'm in the theater watching a Bond movie and I'm like, I don't know, you know, seven or eight years old. <laughs> let's see here. It was great. Um The, f the final scenes for Lois Maxwell and Sir Roger Moore each make a reference to their end with the franchise. 
Maxwell's last scene as Moneypenny shows her in tears, while Moore's last scene as Bond has him quite literally throwing in the towel. <laughs> I never really put that together. Yeah. The title song was written by John Barry and Duran Duran, and it was sung by Duran Duran. It had been only the only James Bond song to reach number one in the U.S., and it stayed in the top position for two weeks out of its 17 run on the, on the charts. Again, it was a, it's a catchy tune. Uh, it entered the U.K. and U.S. charts May 18th, 1985, and it peaked at number two on the U.K. charts. Soundtrack album charted on the UK, uh, in the U.K. June 22nd, 1985, where it went to number 81. In the U.S., the soundtrack album entered the charts June 29th, 85, peaking at 38. Not bad. Not bad at all. Again, Duran Duran was a big deal. Mm. Oh, wow. Here we go. Uh, there's some dirty stuff here, so you've been warned. Uh, reportedly, reportedly, Grace Jones had a black dildo with her during the bed scene between May Day and James Bond. Whew. Uh, according to Sir Roger Moore's biography. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> she, well, Grace Jones is a little eccentric. Or is, I... Is she, um, hold on, I don't know, I thought she might have passed away, let me see, double check, I think she did, unfortunately, but if I'm wrong, well, I suck, but let's see, okay, she's still going, where did I, maybe that's, um, what you call that? The effect, the, uh, uh, that effect where you think something happened and it didn't. She's still going. She's, uh, 75. Good on her. Where did I hear that she passed away? <laughs> anyway, the Mandela effect, Mandela effect, sorry. Good on her. Good on her. But she she's a bit, she's a little eccentric. Um, let's see, the movie. Let's see. Yeah, this is what I was talking about. I'll expand on this. This movie was intensely disliked by Sir Roger Moore, who was barely on speaking terms with Grace Jones during filming. Wow. <laughs> he did not consider this to be a real 007 movie. Moore said, I was horrified in the last Bond I did. Whole slews of sequences where Christopher Walken, or Christopher Walken was machine gunning hundreds of people. I said, that wasn't Bond. These weren't Bond films. I, it stopped being what they were all about. He didn't dwell on the blood and brain spewing all over the place. And it's not... I would say this isn't particularly gory. It's just what's implied, I think. There's some blood, I think, if I remember. Or maybe not. I really don't remember it being that gory. Violent, yes. But gory, ah. Not, there's a gory scene in um, the Timothy Dalton one uh, where, now that's gory, um, where they put uh, 
Bond's body into a pressure chamber or decompression chamber and you watch his head blow up like it's very horrific um now that was yeah <laughs> that was worse than that um let's see okay there's the remy juline juline stunt team from, from france did many of the stunts in the movie uh yeah because a lot of this movie takes place in france i believe um, but in, because of the Eiffel Tower scene, um, but in the San Francisco segment, a scene in which Sir Roger Moore was supposed to be driving a fire truck, the stunt driver was too short to reach the pedals and properly operate the truck. There wasn't much time to rig the truck, so Moore volunteered to drive it quite expertly, as noted by this local San Francisco Teamsters. That's pretty cool. Uh, Moore claims that he was a lorry driver, among other things, before his acting paid the bills. That's pretty cool. Um, that's pretty cool that he's really driving that truck. That's neat. Of course, Christopher Walken became the first Academy Award-winning actor to star in a Bond movie. I'm trying to think where he... He probably got an Academy Award for The Deer Hunter, if I had to guess. I may be wrong. Um, so one of the things that Grace Jones' character, Mayday, has is this... like a um, fishing line with these little deadly butterflies that hook into people and poison them or something. Um, I thought that was pretty creative. And that's used uh, in, the, in the sequence in the Eiffel Tower where Bond's kind of going up. And, uh, he gets... Uh, she tries to hook him with that stuff. Let's see. There's also a great scene where the, uh, during that sequence he's driving a car and the <laughs> the car gets torn in half, literally, and he's still driving the front half of the car, which is pretty amazing. There's still some good stunts in this movie. Um, I'd say the first 20 minutes of this movie are pretty solid. Um, gives us something that we haven't seen before. Uh, but again, I think the momentum, it loses track of its pacing. It slows down immensely in the middle lingers too long on shots when we could have more stuff about Walken's, about Zoran's character and, and what he, you know, how he operates and, and more background uh, stuff on him. Um, or him chew, chewing scenery, being more crazy and saying, you know, more one-liners, you know. That would have been more entertaining. Ha <laughs> In December 2007 interview, and in December 2007 interview, Sir Roger Moore uh, said regarding this movie, I was a bit, I was only about 400 years old, too old for the part. <laughs> I was only about 400 years, too old for the part. Uh, God bless you, Roger, rest in peace. Uh, Lois Maxwell suggested Miss Money Penny be killed off. Oh, this is interesting. David Bowie was offered the part of Max Zorin. He turned down the role uh, in favor of one in Labyrinth 
Bowie later explained that he thought his movie, that, that this movie script, this movie script was too terrible and workmanlike to spend much time working on, and he told the producers that he, what he thought of it. <laughs> he also said that his directness wasn't received very well by them. <laughs> Ouch. In 2003, he admitted that he didn't like the Bond movies, and he hadn't seen one since the Connery era. Well, you know, you got to kind of like the Bond movies, I think, um, uh, really to get into it. Um, but he's not too off the mark. Um, I don't think it was terrible. I think it had a good premise, but it just wasn't utilized as well as it should have been. Um and he's right when he says it's workmanlike. It's very kind of by the numbers, kind of stale in some areas. Um, so he's not too far off. But to say that you don't like the Bond movies, it's like, well, come on. Um, but yeah, David Bowie would have been uh, perfect for that role too. But Christopher Walken's great. I mean, they're both really good for that a role like that. Let's see here. First, the, first theatrical movie, movie of Allison Duty, uh, who turned 18 during filming. That's interesting. I didn't know that was her first movie. And she was that young in the movie. Let's see. This looks like an interesting one. Um, at a night with Sir Roger Moore in Dublin... Ireland, in November 20th, 2016, Sir Roger Moore was asked, asked, who would win in a fight with Grace Jones? <laughs> Moore paused and remained silent for several seconds before saying, my mother once said, if you have nothing good to say about someone, then say nothing at all. <laughs> Jones, on the other hand, recalled working with Moore. Working with Moore was enjoyable and was one of her favorite co-stars. Oh, that was nice. And claimed her bad rapport was due to her wanting to stay in character, as she was meant to hate Bond. In her own book, I'll Never Write My Memoirs, she explains she deliberately kept her hating him, hating him character. Her hating him character, which, which creeps Sir Roger Moore. <laughs> uh, but that was that he was helpful to her throughout, as in the scene where she had had to be surprised to see Bond still alive. He eventually did some uh, unna um, unnamed thing to cause this genuine reaction for her. Oh, that's funny. That's pretty cool because that tells you, like, that's kind of like a, a you know, a comparison is kind of like, a, oh, what's those two actors? Lawrence Olivier and uh, Dustin Hoffman. And their two styles were Dustin Hoffman is more, um, oh, what, what do they call that? A type of acting. Oh, it's not coming to me today, but, you know, really gets into the role, literally. Like, he really, you know, does things that the character endured uh, method, method acting while. Olivier is always just like pretending. This is pretend. The kind of school of acting. Um, where definitely Roger Moore's taking a cue from Olivier and Grace Jones as being more method 
by staying in character. So those two styles conflict. And, uh, but that's, that's nice. That's both pretty classy of both of them to say that. Um, and uh, Moore is a class act. And I think Grace Jones is too. You know, she's just, she's just different. You know, that's, that's all. You know, let's see. Albert, after producer Albert R. Broccoli told Lois Maxwell, Miss Moneypenny, that she would not return for the next Bond movie, he commented that, that they were the only two people from Dr. No in 62 who were still working on the franchise. Yeah, that's pretty cr- incredible. Uh, in the opening sequence in Siberia, when the Russian soldier is left dangling from a precipice among his garbled words, can be heard, Roger Moore! <laughs> I never picked that up. I got to watch it for that part. The opening sequence. Again, it's, again, there's a lot of ski sequences in Bond, the Bond movies. You get, you'll lose track of which movie it is due to the, all the ski sequences in all the movies. Um, uh, there's, there's a lot of blue screen in this open, in, in it, you know, but at least it's always riveting to watch still. Um, again, the Beach Boys, there's that cheese factor they kept throwing in. Like, it's kind of like uh, in Indiana Jones and Crystal Skull. You had uh, Shia LaBeouf uh, swinging from vine to vine, and they played... Uh, they, Spielberg apparently made a choice to have a Tarzan yell of him do, while he was doing it, which I thought was unwise because it was cheese, total cheese. Um, and it ruins the moment. Oh, I didn't know this. Well, I don't know if this is true. It says, Sir Roger Moore had some cosmetic surgery before filming began. Yeah, it's possible. I, I don't know that you could prove that. You know, but he, again, he probably was trying to look younger, but uh, I don't know if he took the, the movie that serious. It's like, I better get cosmetic surgery to do this movie. I don't know. I think that's just somebody chiming. They, that's what they think. I don't know if you can really prove that. But it's possible. Um, filming was delayed with the 007 stage at Pinewood Studios. Burnt down on June, 20, June 27th, 80, 27th, 84. During the production of Legend. Another great movie. Um. Uh, it was completely rebuilt in less than four months and renamed the Robert, the Albert R. Broccoli 007 stage. Coincidentally, the title song of the, the movie contained the lyric, Dance into the Fire. <laughs> the stage burnt down. It's quite literally dancing into the fire. It burnt down again in July 2006, just after filming had been completed on Casino Royale. In 2006. Wow. That's so strange. Hmm. There's patterns in life. There's patterns. Um, there was much criticism that Sir Roger Moore's stunt doubles were too obvious in this movie. <laughs> I think that's true. I, I, I could see that. I can't, that lends to the charm of the movie now. <laughs> there, there's a lot of like go with it kind of things that 
I'm biased, so I, I kind of like it that way. Um, Tanya Roberts had high hopes that this would be her big break. Telling reporters at the time, Kim Basinger uh, got the natural in 84 after making a James Bond movie. Yeah, the same kind of thing happened to me. Unfortunately, despite the global attention that comes with every Bond release, uh, it did nothing, nothing to boost her career, and she did not appear in a widely theatrical motion picture ever again. That's rough. You know, that's rough. She's got a certain, she had a certain charm to her. Um, again, as far as acting-wise, I don't know how much range she really had. Um, but she's charming. Um, she's good looking. Um, again, it, it's just sometimes it's a time and place for everything. And sometimes the magic doesn't line up. Uh, right. The people, the right people aren't there. There's, you know, there's a whole thing, a whole bunch of things that variables factor into it. Um, as with many things in life, let's see. Ah, this movie is often credited with helping to spark the interest in snowboarding uh, due to its use in the pre-credits opening action snow sequence. <laughs> the snowboarding stunts performed by Thomas Sims, American inventor of the snowboard. Interesting. A cover version of the Beach Boys song, California Girls, performed by Beach Boys associate Adrian Baker can be briefly heard as an in-joke when James Bond snowboards. The song does not feature on the soundtrack album. No. I love the Beach Boys, but that was cheesetastic. Um, not in a good way. Let's see. Timothy Dalton was considered to be, was considered to step in as James Bond if Sir Roger Moore decided not to return he ended up being cast as Bond in the next two films, Living Daylights and License to Kill, of course. And he should be lucky. He should consider himself lucky because Living Daylights is a stronger script than this one. Uh, uh, I'm trying to think what else. What else about the movie stood out? Um, again, the blimp. The fight scene, there's a great scene where a guy gets thrown out of a blimp. Like there's a, the table in there and uh, and uh, Zoran's going on about the, the microchip. And he's just, you know, the thing opens up. They show all these microchips on the, on the table, his world domination table. And he has, he walks some dude out or he has Mayday walk somebody out to the bathroom or something and it, the floor, he goes down the floor, caves and, and turns into a slide, and it opens up at the bottom. And he comes shoot, he comes out like a shoot, and uh, that was pretty funny. Um, that's memorable. Um, again, there are memorable scenes, and there's a memorable, memorable scene, uh, memorable scene with Max and his, I don't know, this guy that it's like a father figure to him. Um, he's kind of like a older henchman in a way. He cares for Max, so when Max bites it, he's, like, all heartbroken. Which is interesting, but I thought it's like, well, that's a little too little too late. Why didn't they use some scenes where we, the camera was just, you know, watching 
henchmen in the underground cave and establish more of a rapport and relationship between those two characters so it would have paid off more emotionally um but still it's there it implied that there is a, a father-son kind of relationship there which was interesting um <laughs> in his memoir sir roger moore remembered that grace jones would play loud music in her dressing room which meant he couldn't get his afternoon nap <laughs> well, he was getting older, you see. Uh, Moore admitted that after unsuccessfully asking Jones to turn the music down, he got so annoyed he threw a chair at the dressing room wall. Wow! As he dryly observed, this did not help set the mood for their yet-to-be-shot uh, yet sex scene. <laughs> well, it's in his memoir. Wow, Okay. Yeah, I think that's definitely a conflict of, that's maybe a generational difference, maybe, mixed in with different styles, mixed in with, uh, Roger Moore's getting older. <laughs> crazy, crazy. Um, aside from uh, using a shotgun loaded with rock salt, James Bond doesn't actually shoot anyone in this movie. Huh. That's fascinating. I never really put that together. Like I said, the John Barry score is really works really well with the Duran Duran uh, song. Um, the description of Max Zorin in the script was based on Sting and written with David Bowie in mind, but he turned this movie down. Bond beds four women in this movie, which is a tie for the most... At time of release, which with Never Say Never Again. Yeah, you know, he does it, but it's, it's, it's not really noticeable. It doesn't really stand out that he betted four women in this movie. You know. Oh, the, the role of Max Zorin was also offered to Rutger Hauer. Yeah, he's, he was excellent too. He may, may he rest in peace. The opening sequence in this movie was first... For the first time, James Bond is depicted on a mission inside Russia. Uh, specifically, it was a snow-capped region which was filmed in Iceland. Of the five films the series in the series he personally directed, John Glenn pronounced a view to the kill, view to a kill as the one with the most beautiful Bond girl, Tanya Roberts. Uh, this is Stacy Sutton. Sutton in the movie. This is the only James Bond movie um, to have the title from Ian Fleming work be amended or changed in some way. The source title, which is for, is from For Your Eyes Only, collection of short stories was, from, was called from a, from a View to a Kill. This is also the movie's working title as seen in the end credits of Octopussy 83. In, but, from, but the word from was dropped from... Brought before bit, ah, sorry, but the word from was dropped before filming began in May '84. And I'm gonna I'm gonna end this here with this here, um, because there's just so much trivia. Uh, just before the jump off the Eiffel Tower stunt was to be undertaken, two thrill-seeking members of the public made an unauthorized jump off Paris's famous landmark. 
It has been, it has long been a dare, lark, and thrill for people to jump off famous structures without permission. The first of this movie's jumps was so successful that the second jump was canceled, uh, thereby eliminating any further risk, costs, and time. That was a one and done. Uh, however, as mentioned in Inside A Video Kill in 2000, two of the crew, including Don, tweet Cultvit, uh, Cultvit, I don't know if I'm saying that right, allegedly went and made an unauthorized jump as they were apparently so disappointed that they didn't get to jump off the Eiffel Tower. The non-permitted stunt jump cost them their jobs as it jeopardized the remaining filming of the shoot in the French capital. Yeah. Yep. Got to be careful of that stuff. It's that emotionally, you know, you know, you get disappointed in life. Sometimes, well, you're going to pay a price for that, but is it worth it? <laughs> um, the story is considered a reworking of much of the story structure of an earlier James Bond movie. Goldfinger, the two movies share many similar story elements. However, I will say Goldfinger is as cheesy as some of it is. It's executed better. Um, there's a part where in Goldfinger where the he has a table that kind of opens up. And it's very much like the inside of the blimp in Zoran's, uh, you know, Zoran's blimp. So there's some similarities there. Um, first James Bond movie to have an associated computer game produced tie-in with it. The game had two versions. One was called James Bond 007 A V to a Kill. And the other, James Bond 007 A V to a Kill. Uh, although... Uh, well, those are the same. I think those are the exact same titles. Um, though, yeah, they are. Uh, uh, although there had been a James Bond video game produced prior to it called James Bond 007 in 83. This one was first the first one to have James Bond's name, which is also the name of the computer name of the video game. A computer game called James Bond is seen in Octopussy it had been developed in 84 by Capcom and Parker Brothers. Uh, for Octopus 83. Huh. I'll have to check that one out. It was designed for Atari 2600, Atari 5200, a Commodore 64, and ColecoVision platforms. But it was never released. Oh. Well, Capcom. Those are two quality uh, companies. Parker Brothers and Capcom. But I did play a little bit of Udo Kill on Commodore 64, and it was... Uh, it's bad. <laughs> I, I mean, there's a little playability, but it's hard to know what's going on and what to do, as with a lot of Commodore games. Um, so the ones that do work are actually uh, actually gold. Um, the idea to set the story, set the story in California's Silicon Valley, was a concept conceived by producer and co-writer Michael G. Wilson. In the first draft, Zorin wanted to destroy Silicon Valley by changing the course of Haley's comment, comment, but it was later decided that this plot was not believable. Yeah, it seems a little over the top. Haley's comment, comment was a big thing back then. I wish I had seen, I don't remember seeing it in person, but that would have been cool. Um, but I remember it on the news and everything and in school and stuff. Um, Maybe it might, it's one of those hazy memories. I'm not sure if I did or not. 
I'll just say, okay, it's hot. All right. <laughs> there we go. New, new memory implant. Maude Adams, as a woman in the crowd at Fisherman's Wharf, Adams believed to be visiting San Francisco when the film was in production there. Sir Roger Moore got her to appear in an uncredited extra in a crowd scene, making her the only actress to appear in three Bond movies, including actresses in reoccurring roles after The Man with Golden Gun. Uh, um, and Octopussy 83. Uh, so, yeah, I guess she was there. Be barely noticed her, though. Probably, because she's in the crowd. Um, very good. I hope you all enjoyed this. I, I dedicated a little bit more time to it because it's one of my favorite Bonds. Uh, nostalgically, it's my favorite Bond. Um, because my first... I have to say, technically, my first Bond is Roger Moore because it's the one I went went into the theater to go see. But I... You know, there's lots of love for Sean Connery. I mean, watching his movies on TV mostly was pretty great. And on HBO or, or Showtime um, when I could or on my stepdad's VHS, um, great stuff. So um, I'm leaving you with a view to a kill. And uh, I hope you enjoy my ukulele music. Um, I, I tried. Again, I'm using guitar chords. <laughs> Not the ukulele chords. It would have been done a little bit better. But, uh, all right. I'll see you in the next Bond, which will be um, the uh, Timothy Dalton era. Uh, in uh, The Living Daylights. Bye-bye now.